Uh, Ruth, Professor, ladies and gentlemen, um, thank you very much indeed for inviting me to chair this uh, lecture this evening. It's a great thing to be a hundred. Um, and it's, of course, just as good to have a lecture from Ruth Lister as a letter from the Queen. Um, the lecture will be longer. Um, and it's wonderful that uh, um, you've invited Ruth to give this lecture, which stands in the name of such an important figure in the history, not only of social policy in this country, but of the university. Uh, Sidney Ball, uh, as you know, was one of the <clears throat> most creative um, Fabians um, at the end of the 19th, beginning of the last century. Um, he was a passionate advocate of uh, uh, taking social policy seriously as an academic discipline uh, and of having a proper dialogue, a proper debate between um, economists and uh, those who were principally interested in social policy. Um, he, uh, his career was, of course, tied up with many of the best causes uh, of that period, including founding uh, Toynbee Hall, the establishment of the WEA, uh, and the pressure for um, uh, a proper attitude to women's role in higher education. Um, he was passionate about uh, gender issues, at which time I don't imagine that was the majority view in the senior common room of St. John's. Perhaps I defame um, uh, the common room. Um, I, I'm delighted that you uh, asked um, Ruth Lister to give this lecture because um, I've uh, known Ruth Lister, well, first of all, because she's very good. <laughs> but secondly, because... Uh, I've, I've known her, and she's known of me, for a number of years. Um, when I first got involved in politics, Ruth was working for the Child Poverty Action Group, whose director, um, the director just before you, I think, Ruth, was my pair in the House of Commons and was an important part in my own life and my family's life. Frank Field. Um, I think it's fair to say that for those of us in the 1970s and early 1980s going into uh, politics, the Child Poverty Action Group had, the mo had a more important effect on the way people thought about um, the interconnections of fiscal policy uh, and social policy, of economics and social policy than any other organisation. They were the CPAG were trenchant critics of the government, but not in a something-must-be-done way, because they always knew what should be done and argued what should be done, which is um, an extremely important part uh, of the role of civil society. Um, uh, all of us have had experience of um, NGOs which simply say that the world is awful, um, which it very often is. Um, it's more precious to uh, belong to and run uh, NGOs which uh, have a, a sensible and coherent 
and invariably practical idea of what can be done about dealing with the predicament of uh, trying to make uh, democracy, capitalism and welfare work in a modern society. So Ruth, I think, had an extremely important role in uh, elevating the debate about social policy in this country. She did it as a practitioner. She subsequently did it as an academic. Um, her prestige as an academic was marked by um, her elevation to the uh, British Academy, um, which uh, very few people from the NGO sector um, have ever managed, or originally from the NGO sector. So it's a great pleasure to invite her to give a lecture which has been given by some of the greatest figures in social policy over the last century, uh, social and economic policy, uh, Keynes and Beveridge, GM Trevelyan, Tawney, uh, and uh, today, Ruth Lister. Thank you very much. Chancellor, ladies and gentlemen, colleagues and friends, uh, it's a great honour to, I'll, I'll go like that, Martin's being my assistant with a PowerPoint, so I'll, I'll sort of um, go like that. And, um, it's a great honour to be invited to give the Sydney Ball Memorial Lecture, uh, particularly in this the centenary year of the foundation of Barnet House, the home of social policy in Oxford. And when I reread re Professor Walker's invitation to give the lecture, I realised just what an honour it is, and it's just been, been reminded now, given that I'm following in the footsteps of the likes of Beatrice Webb, William Beveridge, R.H. Tawney. No pressure there, then. <laughs> but when I checked out the full list of past lecturers, I couldn't help but notice that Beatrice Webb and I were exceptions to the rule, and there are no prizes for guessing what rule that is. And I'm not sure what Sidney Ball would have thought as an early champion of women in higher education. Uh, turning to my theme, when it was announced that I was being elevated to that posh retirement home, the House of Lords, I had an email from a colleague reminding me that my role there was to speak truth to power, a phrase originally coined, of course, by the Quakers. And given Sidney Ball's own engagement with social issues of his day, it felt like an appropriate title for this lecture. And I wanted to use the opportunity to reflect on the use of social policy research to speak truth to power, even if power is often not listening or hearing. And I'll finish with some thoughts on why governments are so often resistant to research findings, despite a supposed commitment to evidence-based policymaking. And I'll focus in particular on developments in research in the area of poverty, which has been the ma main focus of my own work. First at the Child Poverty Action Group, where I worked for a time with Fran Bennett, and also was fortunate to have the support of now Lord then Chris Patton uh, uh, from the Conservative backbenches on a number of issues. Then as an academic, and Robert Walker uh, was a colleague at one point at Loughborough. And now as a politician, and I hate to say it, member of the establishment, so that's not an identity with which I easily identify. And when I'm look while I'm looking back, it seems fitting to begin with someone who helped guide my own work, starting with when he taught me as an undergraduate, more years ago than I like to remember, Peter Townsend, the most influential post-war poverty researcher and one who was never slow to speak truth to power. 
Peter Townsend was described on his death in 2009 as one of the global giants of social science and a leading campaigner for social justice, whose work had transformed the landscapes of both the scientific and policy debates on poverty. He shared responsibility for what was called the rediscovery of child and family poverty in the UK after years when the consensus view was that it had effectively been abolished. This was through the publication in 1965 with Brian Abel Smith of a study called The Poor and the Poorest. And it's difficult to think of any other single piece of research which has had more political impact in this field. According to a leading political scientist, it set out to reshape policymakers' interpretation of their environment, and it succeeded in doing that by putting child poverty firmly on the political agenda of the Labour government of the day. And the research was also instrumental in the establishment of the Child Poverty Action Group. Townsend, one of the co-founders, subsequently wrote that the group was formed in the crucible of outrage, particularly by Quakers and social workers with first-hand acquaintance with poverty and by social scientists whose research demonstrated comprehensively that the phenomenon was unne as unnecessary as it was widespread. And CPAG used the findings of the poor and the poorest to put pressure on the government, and I should say this was before my time there, and a study of the poverty lobby observed that it was highly successful and had an immediate effect on politicians and civil servants. Academic research in the CPAG campaign had done more than simply prick the conscience of the Labour Party. It had put the issue of poverty back on the political agenda and stimulated a public debate. And we see here how a pressure group such as CPAG was able to act as a mediating institution using academic research on poverty to give weight to its campaigning work. And the role of mediating institutions is important, as was stressed in a recent meeting in Parliament to launch a social science section of the Parliamentary Office of Science and Technology. Academics and researchers are not always well placed to influence Parliament and policymakers directly and on their own, but mediating groups such as the Women's Budget Group, who I'll come back to later, can provide them with an organisational platform for doing so. Campaigning charities such as CPAG have been one of the main vehicles for speaking truth to power, and social policy research provides them with am uh, valuable ammunition. So it's worrying to read earlier, in, earlier this year that a growing number of charities are fearful of doing so in case they lose contracts or influence. Moreover, there are real anxieties in the charitable sector and civil society more uh, generally that the transparency of lobbying, non-party campaigning, etc. bill currently going through the Lords could stifle their voices in the year preceding an election. In his foreword to the first report of the Commission on Civil Society and Democratic Engagement, Lord Harris, the former Bishop of Oxford, has warned the lobbying bill risks profoundly undermining the very fabric of our democracy by significantly limiting the right of organisations from charities and community groups to think tanks and blog sites to speak out on some of the most important issues facing this country and the planet. Under pressure, the government has paused this section of the bill for brief further consultation, so the hope must be that it listens to the wide array of voices ranged against it. But the chief executive of the Charity Leaders Network, Akibo, has described an undercurrent of attacks on charities' duty to speak out, 
and the Chief Executive of Citizens Advice has warned that proposals to restrict judicial review will curtail their ability to hold power to account through the courts. And uh, just this morning, um, the Joint Committee for Human Rights, of which I'm now a member, uh, was holding an evidence session on the implications of restrictions on judicial review. Returning to Peter Townsend, in a volume inspired by his work, Jonathan Bradshaw observes that not only had he rediscovered poverty before he was 40, he had reconceptualized poverty as relative before he was 30. This more sociological contribution was enormous, framing most subsequent social scientific uh, work on the subject, and also how governments and the EU have defined and measured poverty. It was rooted in, un in, un in an understanding that poverty can only be understood in the context of the society and era in which it is experienced, and that even the most basic needs cannot be divorced from their social and cultural context. He demonstrated how poverty means an inability to participate fully in society, an analysis updated just recently by social policy researchers here at Oxford. And winding forward, it's interesting to note that in opposition, David Cameron stated firmly that we need to think of poverty in relative terms, the fact that some people lack those things which others in society take for granted. So I want this message to go out loud and clear. The Conservative Party recognises, will measure and will act on relative poverty. It's therefore disappointing that in government, ministers have distanced themselves from a relative measure of poverty and Cameron himself dismissed as a, a projected increase in child poverty due to cuts in tax credits as a mere statistical quirk caused by the illogical fact that it was measured relative to average income rather than on an absolute basis. And when I asked an oral question about this in the Lords, I was palmed off with an answer that bore no relationship whatsoever to the question, a not unusual experience I have discovered to my frustration. Now, every time any question is asked about child poverty, the answer is deflected with the line that the child poverty measurement indicators are not fit for purpose. And as many of you will know, the Department for Work and Pensions recently carried out a consultation aimed at improving the measurement of child poverty. This has been criticised by bodies from the Joseph Rowntree Foundation to the Royal Statistical Society. In a letter to the Guardian from eight fellows of the British Academy, myself included, argued that the proposals are confused and would meet neither the government's objectives nor international standards, and that they would open up the government to the accusation that it aims to dilute the importance of income in monitoring the extent of poverty at precisely the time that its policies would be reducing the real incomes of poor families. And I had to smile when I read that the DU. DWP had dismissed our letter as from a handful of academics, particularly when you think that handful has a sort of double meaning. And I was grateful to fellow social policy academics who then wrote to The Guardian to make clear that the views expressed in the letter were indeed representative. A similarly fruitless non-dialogue is now developing around, for the mass around the reasons for the massive increase in the numbers turning to food banks to meet that most basic need of food. Despite the otherwise uh, widespread acceptance of a relative conceptualization of poverty among analysts and politicians, 
I think it's fair to note it's had rather less impact on public understanding of poverty. The British Social Attitudes Survey indicates that only about a fifth of the population subscribes to a relative definition, even if research into minimum income standards has found members of the public do appear to have a more relative understanding of basic needs. And research into how people in poverty themselves talk about poverty, conducted by Jan Flaherty, a former PhD student of mine, suggests that few people in poverty themselves see poverty in relative terms. She writes, for respondents in the study, talk about poverty was to discuss a phenomenon that was seen as having more to do with comic relief and famine news reports than with their day-to-day -day life. Other research suggests that this in part reflects a reluctance to identify with what is seen as a stigmatising label and a desire to be seen as ordinary. The general population's more absolutist view of poverty helps to explain why today child poverty statistics no longer have the power to shock that they did at the time of the poor and the poorest. Research carried out for the Fabian Commission on Life Chances and Child Poverty, of which Fran and I were members, indicated a degree of scepticism towards the official poverty statistics. It seemed that people didn't believe that they measured real poverty, whereas they were moved by evidence of severe hardship and deprivation. Annual income statistics are, though, still important in holding governments to account as they allow us to measure trends over time and to make comparisons with those countries where poverty rates are much lower in order to demonstrate that the high levels of child poverty experienced in the UK are not inevitable. But they do not appear to create a political constituency for change among the general population and have lost, as I said, the power to shock that they had back in the 60s. Of course, the evidence on poverty isn't confined to the official statistics, and I want to turn now to consider some key developments in poverty research since Townsend's pioneering work in the 1960s and 1970s. And I'll start with research which, unlike the official statistics that base their estimates of the number of individuals living in poverty on a household count, examines how poverty is experienced by individuals, particularly women and children, within households. In the 1980s, there was a developing feminist critique of traditional approaches to conceptualising and researching poverty that ignored the ways in which poverty is a gendered phenomenon, with women at greater risk of poverty and bearing much of the burden as the managers of poverty. An important milestone was a study of what happens to money within families by Jan Paul. This and subsequent work revealed a hidden poverty that can exist within families when money is not shared fairly. And this was the background to a small piece of qualitative research that I carried out with Jackie Good and Claire Callender. And unlike the previous research, our study focused exclusively on low-income families in receipt of some kind of social security benefit or family credit, the support then provided to low-paid workers with children. And we interviewed both partners in 31 couples. And at CPAG, I've been involved in a successful sort of campaign to prevent the then Conservative government from paying family credit through the wage packet so that instead it went direct to the caring parent. And at a Social Policy Association conference some years ago, David Willits, now Higher Education Minister, of course, tried to claim it was the research evidence that persuaded his government to pay family credit to the caring parent, when in fact, they were caught in a political pincer movement 
that he then had to concede. Of course, it was partly the research which underlined the importance of paying money for children to the mother, still typically the caring parent, that enabled CPAG to rally some of the opposition to the proposal in the first place. Because of fears that the Conservatives might renege on this if re-elected, one of the topics we explored was how families used family credit and what they thought of the idea of paying it through the wage packet. In the event, it was new Labour who had just come to power and who proposed to pay their new working family tax credit, which replaced family credit through the pay packet. And our research provided val valuable ammunition for those campaigning against us, in particular the Women's Budget Group, a group of feminist academics and others. And it helped to counter the government response that such purse wallet arguments were now somehow outdated. And the result was a compromise by which parents could choose who received the credit and eventually it was decided to split it into two with payment of a new child tax credit to the caring parent and the working tax credit through the pay packet. And two lessons I drew for an Academy of Social Sciences pamphlet on the impact of the social sciences were that the impact will depend on the political context and on how research is used by a range of political players. Even where research is not used to formulate policy, it can provide ammunition in political debate, including when the findings are initially resisted by the government of the day. But it was also a case of lucky timing that we had completed the research just at the point the government was making its proposals. Unfortunately, the Welfare Reform Act 2012 reverses what we won and will pay the whole of the new <coughs> universal credit, including the money for children, into one single or joint bank account. And our attempts to prevent this in the House of Lords came to nothing, and the more recent research evidence we cited, provided by the Women's Budget Group, was ignored. And I'll say more about this later, but I just note here that a study by Fran Bennett and Sirin Sung as part of the ESRC-funded Gender Equality Network was particularly useful in showing that joint bank accounts do not necessarily mean equal access to or control over resources. The most influential message from the research on what happens within families is that money for children is more likely to be spent on the children if paid direct to the parent who takes the main responsibility, everyday responsibility for their care, usually still the mother. And what the research, including a recent Oxfam study into poverty among black and minority ethnic mothers, also tends to show is that parents, and in particular mothers, often go without in order to shield their children from the worst effects of poverty. And this was the finding of an influential earlier study into child poverty carried out in Loughborough Centre for Research in Social Policy when Robert was director there. And it looked at what parents spent on their children and developed a new measure of childhood poverty based on items and activities that the majority of parents believed to be necessary. And it showed how significant numbers of children went without these necessities because their parents could not afford them. The study was funded by the Joseph Rowntree Foundation, the most important source of funding for poverty research in the UK, at a time when the issue of child poverty was simply not on the policy agenda. Among other things, it revealed the inadequacy of the income support rates for younger children relative to those paid for older children. And we know that this research influenced Gordon Brown's early decision as Chancellor to raise those rates in real terms 
and to double them in real terms during Labour's period in office. Interestingly, interestingly though, many people are completely unaware of this because the government was unusually modest about uh, its achievement, which formed part of its strategy of redistribution by stealth. CRISP were also among a few pioneers who taught directly to children about what it meant to experience poverty. As Tess Ridge, who built on this work in her study of childhood poverty observes, what was particularly apparent using this approach were the social and peer pressures exerted on children, the financial demands of participation and the fears and social costs of exclusion. And in an overview of research into children's perspectives on poverty, she and Peter Saunders argue that the development of research which presents the experiences, opinions and concerns of children themselves has an important role to play in ensuring that policies targeted at children in poverty are meaningful and appropriate for addressing the life worlds of the children they are intending to support. Without this key subjective dimension, such policies may fail to deliver any significant or, la or lasting change in children's circumstances, they wrote. And I think it's fair to say that government has got the message insofar as it does now recognise the need to listen to children themselves some of the time, thanks largely to this pioneering research. But how far the messages from that research are reflected in policy is another matter. Indeed, the Office of the Children's Commissioner for England published a study of what children and young people themselves have to say about poverty last year because, as the Children's Commissioner put it, we felt that children and young people's voices were missing from the strategies aimed at eradicating child poverty in this country. Another area of research that has incorporated the voices of children and young people is that into young carers, uh, much of which was carried out at Loughborough. And as Saul Becker and colleagues wrote, our work and the work of others, which is part of the growing literature on the sociology of childhood, has studied children as carers in their own right. Um, has, has, children's carers, has given them a voice, has regarded them as social actors. Joe Aldridge explains how prior to the 1990s, academics, policymakers and welfare professionals failed to recognise and account for children's caring responsibilities within the family. By the end of the decade, a sea change had occurred. The number of dedicated young carers projects grew from a handful to around 200. Young carers were acknowledged in policy, guidance and law. They had legally defined rights. And it's gratifying that this work has eventually helped bring about a government amendment to the Children and Families Bill, currently in the Lords, which will, among other things, provide all young carers with the right to an assessment of their needs for support. And the work of the Young Carers Research Group, together with the growing body of sociological and social policy research, which attempts to listen to the voices of children in poverty, is underpinned by a recognition of children's agency. In other words, that they are social actors who, to quote Jerry Redmond, often exercise creativity in coping with their situation and in improving their own lives and those of their families and are not simply passive objects of decisions made by their parents or professionals. And this, is an, a, this is an example of a more general development in poverty research to which I now want to turn, research which helps to capture the agency of those living in poverty. 
The question of agency and its relationship to structure lies at the heart of alternative explanations of poverty. Are the causes of poverty to be found primarily in individual behaviour and attitudes, agency, or in the organisation of the economy and society, in particular the labour market, but also the family and the social security and education systems, together with social divisions of class, gender, race, disability and age, in other words, structure. The present government sees the causes of poverty as behavioural and cultural, lying in families and communities, and what David Cameron uh, described as wrong personal choices. This particular agency perspective contrasts with a kind of structural analysis developed by Peter Townsend and most other social scientists, most recently in an evidence review carried out for JRF. And until fairly recently, this kind of structural analysis more or less ignored agency for fear of blaming the victim. But an important development in the conceptualization of poverty has been to acknowledge the importance of the agency of people living in poverty in the sense of recognition of the ways in which they negotiate their lives just like anybody else does. People in poverty may be victims, but they are not helpless, passive victims. From the day-to-day -day struggle to get by, to attempts to get out of poverty, they are exercising agency, but in the context of severe structural constraints and limited opportunities. Now, I was particularly struck by the insight from the cross-national research conducted by Robert Walker, Elaine Chase and colleagues, which suggests that the shame so often heaped on those in poverty, what I've called a process of othering in my own work, uh, can undermine agency, thereby making it that much harder to get out of poverty or even just to get by. And such insights must not be confused with the perspective on agency that attributes the causes of poverty to it. And two examples of how poverty research can help to illuminate this kind of agency are provided by what in the jargon is called qualitative longitudinal research <coughs> and livelihoods research. Our understanding of poverty has been aided by poverty dynamics research using longitudinal data sets, which track the same individuals over a number of years. We have a much better understanding now of the extent to which people move in and out of poverty and of patterns of long-term versus recurrent poverty. Some of that research has been carried out here in Oxford by Mark Tomlinson and Robert Walker using extremely sophisticated analytic techniques. I wouldn't understand them, I have to say. Most of this research into poverty dynamics has been quantitative, providing an overall picture of the impersonal macro level. And invaluable as that is, it cannot provide insights into the ways in which these dynamics reflect the agency of the individuals involved, or the toll that the struggle to get out of poverty can take on them. And from the perspective of understanding agency and its relationship to structure, Qualitative studies at the micro level are therefore important in complementing the longitudinal uh, macro level poverty surveys. In particular, qualitative longitudinal research offers a valuable tool for analysing how people in poverty negotiate change over time. As Jane Miller points out, qualitative data can be more appropriate in exploring how and in what ways people manage and adapt 
or not over different durations of poverty. And she herself of Tess Ridge has used qualitative longitudinal research to explore how lone mothers and also their children negotiate the everyday challenges of sustaining low-income employment over time. This research was cited in a research note circulated by the Minister for Welfare Reform to members of the Lords scrutinising the Welfare Reform Bill after some discussion about the impact of maternal employment on children starting school. And the note stated that UK evidence from in-depth interviews of children, 8 to 14 years, of working lone parents, i.e. this study, show they can be a good role model for their children. Now, I, I recalled having read some articles about this research. And the, the evidence was, as you might expect, rather more ambiguous than that perhaps that note implied. So I contacted the researchers and they sent me some material that confirmed this. So when we returned to the issue, in the context of an amendment, I'd moved to postpone the requirement that lone parents should be required to register for work when their youngest child is aged five. I pointed out that the research found that working lone parents did not always provide a good role model. And I quoted an article which observes that encouraging lone mothers into unstable and insecure labour markets runs the risk of alienating children from the values of employment. For these children, work had held out the promise of something better, and that promise had not been kept. So they also experienced disappointment, and for some, an apparent loss of confidence in the value of work. So we have here an example of how governments can cherry-pick research to suit the policies they are espousing. My advice to the minister was that the message of this research was more haste, less speed, if the government is to succeed in getting lone parents of younger children into the labour market on a sustainable basis. Unfortunately, it was after 10 o'clock at night when we reached the amendment, but at least the point about the research was on the record and hopefully the civil servants might have taken note. Uh, another illuminating piece of longitudinal quality of research undertaken by the Centre for Regional Economic and Social Research at Sheffield Hallam University, which I act as an advisor, looked at the relationship between poverty and place in six very different low-income neighbourhoods over three years. It too illuminated the agency involved in surviving poverty. JRF published a report which set some of the key research findings against implicit and explicit assumptions about low-income neighbourhoods contained in government policies. Now, I'll draw attention to two interrelated points they make, one more general and the other with implications for various measures in the Welfare Reform Act. The first concerns the Conservatives' Broken Britain diagnose, diagnosis, which suggested that particular neighbourhoods and localities facing hardship were distinct from mainstream values, were uniquely dysfunctional and should accept responsibility for their problems. A diagnosis the authors point out, not that far from the previous Labour governments. It has implications for the structure agency debate in explaining poverty. And they write, this diagnosis in framing welfare policy does not accord with some of the main findings of our research in the six case study neighbourhoods. The local economy and how this in turn was influenced by national and international economic processes and policy remained the most important factor determining the trajectory of neighbourhoods and outcomes for their residents. Furthermore, they observed that there was no evidence from the research of distinct places of difference, 
dislocated from the world of hard-working families and replete with broken families, poor parenting, lawlessness and dependency. Indeed, there was a strong affiliation to the virtues of hard work, self-reliance, responsibility and independence. The need to provide for the family and make a contribution to society were prominent in many accounts people gave of meeting the challenges they faced. There was no evidence of an entirely different hierarchy of values and morality informing their experiences and perceptions. And the researchers also emphasise that the picture of the dysfunctional family looming large as a cause of poverty in the Broken Britain narrative was emphatically not supported by the research. Instead, strong and often reciprocal relationships with other family members emerged as a universal feature across all six neighbourhoods. Family members often helped each other out with practical as well as emotional support. And among younger participants, particularly women, such support contributed to a complex tapestry of childcare that participants put together in order to be able to work. Overall, the sense of mutual obligation that often emerged as crises ebbed and flowed was a priceless asset for many people trying to make ends meet. These family networks were part of wider social networks which were of great importance in helping people get by. The researchers suggest that the benefits of a move to another area in pursuit of paid work or training would for many people be outweighed by the costs of such a move. Severing of social networks, a lost sense of belonging and undermining of feelings of safety and security derived from living within the familiar, and loss of informal assistance that allows people to cope and can actually serve to render work a viable proposition. They warn that this is an important corrective to some of the assumptions in policy about how far residential mobility can be stimulated through specific measures and sanctions, such as the housing benefit reforms. Not just housing benefit reforms, but also the overall benefit cap are predicated on the assumption that it's desirable for low-income families claiming benefit to move to lower-cost housing areas. Yet this and earlier research makes clear how damaging this is likely to be to the social networks that not only help such families get by, but as I said, can also underpin their efforts to get out of poverty through paid work. Indeed, the research has warned that if forthcoming social housing and housing benefit reforms oblige low-income households to relocate, this may most affect those with the strongest connections to their existing neighbourhood. As the researchers point out, current social security policies threaten to destroy some of the very building blocks of the big society. But all such evidence is trumped by ministers' belief that some people are simply getting too much benefit, thereby perpetuating a dependency culture, the existence of which is not borne out by a growing body of research evidence, as I will show in a minute. So I cited the Sheffield Hallam research in our last gasp of protest on the Welfare Reform Bill in the Lords. In the end of what is called parliamentary ping-pong, when amendments go back and forth between Lords and Commons, Lord Best, a cross-bench peer formerly of JRF, did not try to push further a compromise amendment aimed at protecting certain groups from what, become, what has become known as the bedroom tax. And incidentally, this, was, uh, this label was coined by him originally, not 
Labour, uh, which perhaps the BBC should point out to Ian Duncan Smith, who has complained about the BBC's use of the term being biased. Anyway, uh, Lord Best tabled an amendment calling for an independent review of the impact, including its impact on families and on matters such as the incidence of poverty and homelessness. So I suggested that in the light of this research, the review should also include the impact on social support networks. And the minister committed the government to research on the impact and undertook to include the impact on social support networks in that. So a very minor example of how research can be used to influence, if not the policy itself, at least the monitoring of the policy. Now, a research programme piloted by Oxfam and Church Action on Poverty since 2005 provides a new perspective on poverty, which helps to combat, again, the pre prevalent belief that living on benefits returns, uh, turns uh, recipients into passive dependence. This is this, uh, what's called the sustainable livelihoods approach, which has its origins in international development, which attempts to involve local people in the development of the research itself. An example of more participatory approaches which treat people in poverty as subjects rather than mere objects of research. And the, uh, this approach is defined as an analytical model that seeks to build on the existing assets and strategies that people living in poverty use to support themselves and then to identify what needs to change in order for their livelihoods to become more secure and sustainable. Thus, its starting point is not deprivation, but assets, by which is meant the strengths and capabilities of people living in poverty. We're talking not just about financial assets, but also human, physical, place-based and social assets. So from a sustainable livelihoods perspective, benefit cuts which force people to move to a new area are destroying important place-based and social assets. To quote, the underlying assumption is that people experiencing poverty are in fact active agents who assess risk carefully and make rational decisions and choices about their lives in light of the external and internal constraints they face. The approach, as I said, thus focuses on agency within the context of structural constraints. And it's worth noting, worth noting here also that rationality should not be interpreted simply as that associated with economic man. As Duncan and Edwards argued on the basis of earlier research on lone motherhood, people are also motivated by what they called gendered moral rationalities, which might accord equal weight to, for instance, care responsibilities. And these moral rationalities are more or less ignored in policymaking with its preoccupation with paid work as the solution to all problems. A more recent report which reflects on the implications for the coalition government's agenda of the uh, uh, SL research carried out so far, makes a similar point to argue that welfare reform needs to be informed both by people's lives and motivations and by the context in which they live. Crucially, it argues by looking beyond the financial elements of people's lives the approach allows policymakers to understand how these factors may contribute to recurrent poverty. For example, a person may take a job that makes sense for them financially, but if it damages the social networks that they rely upon to fulfill their caring responsibilities, that job might become unsustainable. And the report emphasizes the importance of the physical asset of a home 
as the linchpin of the many assets which make up a sustainable livelihood. Thus, not only do benefit and housing policies threaten social and place-based assets, as I've already mentioned, they also, the report argues, look very likely to undermine this crucial part of any livelihood strategy. And one finding which particularly struck me when I read the first piece of research carried out in the Northeast was that libraries were the most valued public asset along with Shore Start Children's Centres. They're seen as, and I quote, a safe, warm and unthreatening place to go at no cost, but equally they allow for access for the wider community through local newspapers, computers, a range of information, and for very isolated people, some basic human contact. And I think this is worth remembering in the debates around cuts in library services. And the general lesson drawn from the research is that it will be worthwhile for policymakers and service providers to use the livelihoods approach to engage more directly with people experiencing poverty on a systematic and regular basis, ensuring that policy is sensitive, sensitive to the survival choices people often have to make. Now, this is about the latest in the number of calls to policymakers to listen to what people in poverty themselves have to say and to recognise the expertise born of experience, a principle also underpinning more participatory approaches to poverty research that Fran Bennett has helped to promote. And a novel recent example comes from a qualitative longitudinal PhD study by Ruth Patrick into the lived experiences of welfare reform. And as well as involving research participants in the steering group, she secured funding to make an animated film directed by the participants themselves, in which they set out to challenge some of the stereotypes about benefit claimants and, convey a and to convey a sense of their frustrations with the work programme. And I was delighted to chair its launch in Parliament, where some of the participants were able to talk to parliamentarians about their experiences. And one initiative in which Fran and I were uh, both involved was the Commission on Poverty, Participation and Power, half of whose members had direct experience of poverty. And I learned an enormous amount from my participation in that, and it informed the conceptualisation of poverty that I developed uh, in my book on the subject, because it did bring home to me the value of that expertise born of experience. And one of the main messages we received was that people experiencing poverty see consultation without commitment and phony participation without the power to bring about change as the ultimate disrespect. And that is often what they experience. So turning to the impact of more conventional evidence on policy, research evidence of the kind I've been reflected on is, of course, only one influence on policymaking. However evidence-based, policymaking remains a political process, of course. And as such, it reflects political ideologies. And this was brought out very clearly back in 2000 by David Blunkett, then a minister, in an Economic and Social Research Council lecture on the relationship between social science and government. And he pointed out the work, that the work of neither researchers nor policymakers is value-free. Indeed, he candidly admitted that he, mean, he may let his, I quote, prejudices override the legitimate empirically-based evidence, politicians have a tendency to believe research when it reinforces their own view, that those are his words. Conversely, where research findings go against the grain of government thinking and beliefs, 
they are less likely to fall on fertile policy ground. And more recently, I read somewhere that a former MP reflecting on evidence-based policy reported having heard one MP harumph to another, why is there all this fuss about evidence-based policy? Don't you just know what you think? Thus, I was struck during the course of the Welfare Reform Bill's passage through the Lords that the research-based policy evidence, which pointed to the likely negative impact of various measures, something which I've talked about, had little purchase in the face of a strong ideological reserve, uh, uh, resolve to use Social Security to change behaviour. I've already mentioned the evidence how, in effect, forcing people to move to cheaper areas is likely to undermine a number of assets, they used to sustain uh, livelihoods, including through paid work. But it was also striking in relation to a number of measures with particular implications for women, such as the payment of the whole universal credit, including for children, uh, into one bank account, as I've said, and the move from fortnightly to monthly payments. Amendments which drew on, drew on research and which would not have cost money were rejected by the minister because the government was determined to make people budget in ways that supposedly equip them better for a future move into the labour market and act responsibly. And there was a strong sense that they should learn to budget like us. And Fran Bennett and Sirin Sung, who contributed some of that research, have also reflected on the thinness of the equality impact assessments conducted on the Welfare Reform Bill, a criticism made too by the Joint Committee of Human Rights before I joined it, and this was symptomatic of how the whole re reform process lacked a gendered and equalities perspective. Ministers are similarly impervious to the evidence about the inadequacy of benefit levels in relation to minimum income standards. Minimum income standards, or MIS, uh, represent the income that people need in order to reach a minimally sociable, socially acceptable standard of living in the UK today, based on what members of the public think. And as the first JRF report on MIS put it, they include having sufficient resources to participate in society and maintain human dignity. And the notion of human dignity is at the heart of a human rights approach to poverty. And thanks to the research into poverty and shame initiated in the Oxford Institute of Social Policy, the principle of respect for the rights and dignity of Social Security recipients was incorporated into the recent ILO recommendation concerning national flaws of social protection. And the researchers have observed that the recommendation sets a standard that has the potential to require the radical upgrading of the British social security system. Compare and contrast with the official ministerial, res ministerial response, it is not envisaged that this recommendation will have any impact on the UK as it is consistent with UK government policies. And I fear that considerably more influential than MIS research and ILO recommendations are opinion polls, which have found diminishing support for decent social security benefits and a growing belief that many claimants are scroungers. Such findings are perhaps not surprising, given that policy and much political and media debate are driven by an assumption that welfare dependency and intergenerational worklessness are widespread problems. This assumption tends to be backed up by anecdotal evidence in the case of MPs, usually what they've been told on their doorsteps or in their constituency surgeries, leading to a kind of negative feedback loop. And as an aside, it's interesting to contrast 
reliance on this kind of anecdotal evidence with the treatment of qualitative research. And in an article exploring the insights that qualitative research can provide for policy, and especially in, especially in understanding culture and behavior, Fran and Sirin cite a study of DWP civil servants involved in policy making. And it found a tendency to filter evidence by methodology with quantitative findings carrying much greater weight. And one civil servant commented that from a research point of view, there is a reluctance to go for anything other than numbers. And what happens when the numbers aren't there? Well, earlier this year, Ian Duncan Smith acknowledged in a letter to an MP that his repeated assertions about families where generations have never worked were based on personal observations in the absence of statistical data. <laughs> a subsequent Freedom of Information request from Lindsay Macmillan fell back on citing a Bristol University research report. Weirdly, this was in fact Macmillan's own statistical analysis, which directly challenged IDS's position. It found very little evidence of even two generation never working families, never mind three generation. And this cautionary tale was related in a recent article by Robert MacDonald and colleagues. And their research for JRF, along with other studies, has illuminated the nature of recurrent poverty, as many people, as I've said, typically move in and out of an insecure labor market, again challenging the notion of a widespread dependency culture. And in this particular article, based again on research for JRF, they liken the search for intergenerational worklessness to hunting the yeti. They found it impossible to locate families where three generations have never worked, despite intensive field work explicitly designed to reach such families. So instead, they interviewed members of families where two generations had experienced long-term worklessness. But again, uh, they were unable to find evidence of a culture of worklessness. Instead, they found that informants of whatever generation or gender were agreed about the moral, social, psychological, and financial advantages of working over being workless. And importantly, all parents were adamant in wishing that their children did not end up in the same situation as them, a view echoed by the younger generation. And this evidence was cited in debates on the Welfare Reform Up Rating Bill which will cut the real value of social security benefits and tax credits over the next three years. However, one conservative backbench MP responded, there is evidence of a culture of worklessness, whatever the Joseph Roundtree Foundation says. And this evidence, a caller to LBC Radio. And I think this is a good example of the researcher's observation that theories of intergenerational cultures of worklessness feel like zombie arguments, resistant to evidence, resistant to evidence and social scientific, effort, social scientific efforts to kill them off. And they cite President F.D. Roosevelt's remark that mere repetition does not transform a lie into truth. And the same applies to the repetitive misrepresentation of government statistics in support of the welfare dependency agenda. It's striking how frequently ministers have been taken to task for what an economist blog described as such disgraceful abuse of numbers. The authors of the blog's particular target was the DWP, out of which it is claimed, and I quote, questionable numbers have floated into the public debate like raw sewage. And the DWP have been admonished more than once 
by the UK Statistics Authority for misusing statistics. Now, in response to a petition calling for the Secretary of State to be held to account, started by two disabled benefit recipients, the Work and Pensions Committee will indeed be questioning him on this, uh, on this on Monday. Now, the selective use of evidence is part of what Tom Slater has critiqued as the willful institutional ignorance surrounding welfare reform. He deployed what he calls an agnotological approach, i.e. the study of ignorance making. <laughs> to argue that a familiar litany of social pathologies is repeatedly invoked by the architects of welfare reform to manufacture ignorance of alternative ways of addressing poverty and social injustice. Structural causes of poverty have been strategically ignored in favour of a single behavioural explanation, a point I made earlier. So finally, uh, and I always recall um, that wonderful economist J.K. Galbraith, who apparently once said it's a very good idea to sprinkle the word finally, liberally, into your lecture. <laughs> but I'm a great believer that hope, because it gives your audience hope, but I, I'm a great believer that hope dashed is worse than no hope at all, so this really is finally. So finally, rather than finish with some firm conclusions to what was really a set of reflections, I would instead put them in the wider context of inequality. And a famous line from R.H. Tawney, who I'm sure gave a far more erudite Sydney Ball lecture back in 1934, goes, what thoughtful rich people call the problem of poverty, thoughtful poor people call with equal justice the problem of riches. And I think that was actually on the cover of one of Frank Field's books. And the research microscope has uh, always been more focused more on those at the bottom than those at the top, not least because the latter can more easily block access and have much more power. And the imbalance of power between those who enjoy wealth and those who live in poverty is the context in which you have to understand why policy continues to tend to favour the former and often to ignore the truth of the evidence. And the wider the gap between rich and poor, the harder it is to maintain the threads of solidarity and citizenship which underpin a generous welfare state. Thanks in part to public resentment against the largesse enjoyed in recent years by the city, despite its role in the financial crisis, inequality has been problematized more in political and media debate in the last few years. However, I fear that this is not translating into greater sympathy for people in poverty, especially those out of work. Instead, it almost seems to be fueling resentment against them among, them among those now known famously as the squeezed middle. And this creates a big challenge for all who are concerned about poverty, whether in parliament, academe, or civil society. Good research cannot on its own combat such attitudes and the manufacture of ignorance, but it can help. And in this hostile climate, we need it more than ever if we are to speak truth to power particularly when power can itself be economical with the truth. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.